Bonjour. Hello. Hola. Marhaba bikum. Hello, welcome back to Your Planet from AFP, brought to you in association with The Conversation. I'm Anna Cunningham. Now, so far in this series, we've been exploring the potential solutions to take us forward to a more sustainable future and away from those planetary boundaries that tip us in the wrong direction. But we've done so, so far from dry land. So it's about time we take a deep dive into one major element of our planet, our oceans. What impact do human activities and the climate crisis have on the oceans and how do we protect the vast waters that make up our blue planet? Well, in recent years, we've seen melting ice caps, rising sea levels, marine heat waves and a changing chemistry in our oceans that's happening so fast, acidification is directly affecting marine life as well as the ocean's ability to absorb CO2. But in 2023, a major step was taken to protect our oceans. Let's take that dive into the blue to uncover more. This is Your Planet from AFP. We are facing what I would call an ocean emergency. Our oceans are issuing an SOS. They are struggling, heating and acidifying. Corals are dying. Coastal ecosystems such as mangroves, seagrasses and wetlands are being degraded. Fisheries are being depleted and the ocean is choking in plastic wastes. Antonio Guterres, the United Nations Secretary General, delivering a, well, rather bleak outlook for our oceans when he spoke to the media in Lisbon, Portugal, at the long-delayed UN Oceans Conference back in June 2022. Now, it's all too easy to forget from the comfort of our dry lands just how big a role the oceans play in our lives and, indeed, the future of our blue planet. Is it really possible that our oceans could be our greatest ally against climate change as some claim. And if so, have we missed the boat to stop their destruction? The world's oceans are useful in many ways. One major bonus is that they act as enormous carbon and heat sinks, capturing 90% of excess heat and energy from rising greenhouse gases. And one thing that aids that process is plankton. It acts like microscopic carbon hoovers. And it's plankton that Dr Claire Austell, a marine biogeochemist and the coordinator of the Pacific Continuous Plankton Recorder Survey, is hunting down from aboard a research vessel just off the coast of Plymouth in the southwest of England. She's on the lookout for two types of plankton. One is phytoplankton, better known as algae, made up of diverse plant-like cells. The other, zooplankton, animals like krill and the larvae of fish, crabs and other marine creatures. So although there doesn't look like there's much on here, if you were to look under a microscope, there's a lot there. Um, and that's what's really exciting. And then these tiny, tiny organisms are affecting our whole ecosystem. They're affecting our climate just by impacting the atmospheric concentrations of carbon that we know. 
Um, so they're, they're huge in, in our kind of world. <laughs> For 90 years, these surveys have been carried out in every ocean, studying the equivalent of nearly 400 circumnavigations of the planet. And in the past few years, scientists have been using the data to see how climate change has been affecting these ecosystems. What they've observed is that plankton, like many marine animals, have been on the move, heading for cooler areas like the Earth's poles. Smaller, warm water plankton are also replacing the more nutritious cold water ones. So in turn, the species that feeds on them need to adapt or move too. It's like an entire ecosystem has been turned on its head. So I'd say the big worry is when, when change happens so quickly that the ecosystem can't recover or can't cope. So we, we, call, we talk about this thing called a regime shift, and that's often when you have an abrupt change in the ecosystem, usually due to a spike in temperature or a consistent change in temperature. Um, and that can cause whole fisheries to collapse, and that's quite a worrying thing. This was one reason that the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres was ringing those alarm bells so vigorously for our oceans. It is time to stop neglecting the health of our oceans. It is not a rubbish dump. It is not a source of infinite plunder. It is a fragile ecosystem on which we all depend for oxygen, for climate regulation and for food. Scientists have raised concerns about the ocean's changing chemistry, specifically its rising acidification. Oceans absorb about 25% of the CO2 in our atmosphere, a bigger capacity than forests take in. But if its chemistry is changing, what's the wider impact? Françoise Guy is a French deep-sea biologist and advocate for oceans. She's also the vice president of the Ocean and Climate Platform, a part NGO, part think tank. Everyone knows that climate change is due to the increase in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But this has also been the case in the ocean. This rise in carbon dioxide means that it dissolves in the water and leads to an increase in the acidity of the ocean. If the ocean is acidic, there are consequences for all living organisms, such as crustaceans, oysters and mussels. And of course, not forgetting what's at the bottom of the marine food chain, plankton. Worldwide, some 3 billion people rely on fish for protein in their diet, and some 600 million people earn their living from fishing. Francoise Guy says there's an urgency to protect our oceans. Not only does this have an impact on biodiversity, it also has an impact on economic activities. So, if global warming increases sea temperatures, which in turn adds to the ocean's acidity, and that in itself reduces the ability to absorb CO2, resulting in global warming, then are we already in the midst of one big tumultuous ocean swell of a vicious cycle? The need for solutions is ever more pressing, but what are they and have we been too slow to act? Well, it wasn't until COP21, 
where the Paris Climate Agreement was adopted back in 2015, that the importance of our oceans in relation to the climate crisis was recognised. Since then, there's been several other protective measures launched. In 2019, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Special Report highlighted the urgency of action for our oceans and the frozen parts of our planet, known as the cryosphere. In 2023, there was a breakthrough, when after more than 15 years of formal and informal talks, a treaty on the oceans was in sight. Even Hollywood actors and activists such as Jane Fonda pitched in. We're pooping in our kennel. We're supposed to be so smart. We're destroying things we don't even understand. We are not behaving right. And why the treaty is important is it will force us to behave right and to save this great ally that we have called the ocean, the one ocean on this blue planet that can save us. There's a lot at stake. A turning point in negotiations came late one Saturday night on March the 5th at the UN headquarters in New York. Good evening-ish, ladies and gentlemen. The ship has reached the shore. Chair of the Intergovernmental Conference and Ambassador for Oceans and Law of the Sea Issues, Rena Lee, exhausted and emotional, announcing that UN member states had finally agreed on a text for the first international treaty to protect the high seas. But what exactly is classed as the high seas? Well, they start at 200 nautical miles from the coastal borders of a country, beyond which there has been zero governance or jurisdiction, a free-for-all. Jane Fonda had a good way of explaining it. It's the Wild West. I didn't realise that this massive expansion that covers our blue planet is without law. And as a result, and because of greed, we are killing the creatures that inhabit it. It's hoped that this high seas treaty will allow laws to be enforced on the high seas that make up more than 60% of the world's oceans and cover nearly half the planet's surface. Up to now, only 1% has been under protection. The pathway to this UN agreement has been in the pipeline since negotiations in December 2022 at the COP15 United Nations Biodiversity Conference held in Montreal, Canada. There, 190 countries adopted a plan to protect 30% of land and water by 2030. Now, getting to a consensus with this high seas treaty has marked a real moment in protecting the world's oceans. Claudia Kramers is from the think tank, the Institute for Sustainable Development and International Relations. She specialises in ocean governance. It's really a historical moment in, in the history of multilateralism or in terms of environmental achievements. Especially in the current geopolitical context, it is remarkable that a treaty on high seas marine biodiversity has been adopted by consensus at the United Nations. And I think it's important to emphasize as well is that the high seas comprise nearly half of the world's surface. 
and two-thirds of the world's ocean. So I think in that sense, it's quite a significant part of the planet that can now finally be protected. At least 60 countries need to ratify this treaty for it to come into force. So how do you ensure that each country does what's required, particularly when we're talking about water boundaries, not hard land? Much still needs to be decided in terms of how countries put this treaty into practice, from regulating human activity on the high seas such as fishing to tourism or maritime traffic. Let's get some more thoughts on this from Claudia Kramers. States are forced to work together uh, and to ensure uh, that protection is happening or that if the ocean is used, it's, it's happening in a sustainable way. Yeah, so this global commons really uh, makes makes it essential that there's broad participation of both developed and developing countries. So whatever is happening in the high seas can also have an impact on national waters. Uh, and especially, for example, what we see in, in West Africa uh, is that there are many states fishing around the national waters uh, of uh, African states. And you can, if you talk to um, people in, in West Africa, they see that the number of fish that they catch or the fish are smaller and smaller because uh, they're being caught in the high seas around their national waters. So it's all very much connected. Claudia Kramer says developing countries are key to making this work. Yeah, it was very interesting as well during negotiations because developing countries, they were really speaking as a united voice uh, in a group called G77 in China. And this group uh, was really powerful during the negotiations. So they made sure that every time there's a special reference to uh, developing countries and their interests. You could almost conclude that the fact that it's so ambitious, uh, the treaty is also partly thanks to the developing countries and, and their interest in making sure that we protect the environment. One country in the Global South that's been active in protecting the ocean is Chile. Just off its northern Pacific coast is the Humboldt Archipelago, made up of eight islands, including three that form a national reserve. It attracts thousands of birds, 14 species of whales, is home to 80% of the world's Humboldt penguins, a threatened species, and is full of seals, dolphins and the world's smallest otter, which is in danger of extinction. Carlos Geimer is a biologist at the Catholic University of the North and director of Chile's Centre for Ecology and Sustainable Management of Oceanic Islands. Chile was the first country in, in Latin America that started to create large-scale marine protected areas. Now also it has the largest uh, marine protected area in Latin America around the Easter Island. But also, Chile has been showing this uh, leadership in other scenarios as well. Like, for instance, in 2017, um, Chile was the first uh, developing country that organized the International Marine Protected Area Congress. Carlos Geimer says there is no place quite like the Chilean archipelago. The Humboldt current is the most productive system in the world. And that's why we have, you know, so productive fisheries in Peru and Chile. So one is because of this. And the other is because this large marine ecosystem is also under severe uh, threats 
because of overfishing, because of pollution, and also climate change. So you have a perfect combination to say, okay, this is priority for conservation. He sees political will, diplomacy, and partnership as key to solving the challenges facing the oceans. Cooperation is is crucial. I mean, there are not many countries that have the technology to do it, for exploring the deep sea, for instance. So when Chilean researchers want to explore the deep sea, then they have to have this kind of collaboration with scientists from other countries that have the, you know, the vessels or the ROV or the submarines to explore deep sea. It's estimated that we only know about 10% of the ocean's biodiversity. 43% of Chile's national waters are now protected and the results are visible. Over a five-year period, fish numbers have increased And since 2020, the Chungungo otters, known as sea cats, known to be on the brink of extinction with just four in existence, have now increased their population to more than 20. But Carlos Gaima acknowledges that applying an international treaty to protect the high seas will prove tricky, particularly when it's applied out in open water. It's not by the fact of having a decree, you know, and and a marine protected area created, that means that that area is really protected. They have to be administrated, implemented. If not, what you have actually is a paper park. So you have a decree and everyone continues to do exactly the same thing. There's no funds for, for surveillance and for enforcement and everything. So it's like having nothing. So that's the main goal that we have now is uh, implement these marine protected areas. And that is not cheap, that is expensive. Challenges remain. China and Norway are two of several countries seeking to mine the seabed for rare metals, cobalt and lithium, used to make electric batteries. But the UK, France and Chile are amongst those opposing deep sea mining. Countries continue to sign up to the High Seas Treaty. A number of high sea zones have been identified as needing urgent protection, from the Costa Rica Thermal Dome, an area hospitable to blue whales, to the Atlantic's Sargasso Sea. But the next step is to turn a treaty into action. There's still work to be done. Your Planet is an AFP audio production brought to you in association with The Conversation, presented by me, Anna Cunningham. The executive producer is Michaela cancela Kiefer and production by Camille Kaufman. Sound design is by Nicolas Ver. You can reach us directly with your thoughts at podcasts at afp.com. And as always, please do leave us a review so others know where to find us. Thanks for listening.